Hello and welcome to episode 164 of the ANF podcast with me, Scott Casson-Rennie, and himself, uh... Al Coates. Al Coates. There you go. Al Coates. Yeah, yeah. Very happy with myself today. Oh, yeah? Why? I have no idea. It's just a oh. general feeling that came out. So the, the sunshine, the, the warmth, spring has sprung, what, what, yeah. All of that. Yeah, it's just then, uh, I don't know about you, but I get this, this is like a middle-aged person sort of excitement thing, is that it feels like about six weeks ago at four o'clock at night, it was dark. And then now it's nine o'clock at night and I'm going, oh, it's still light. And I just love that sense of, oh, there's so much more we can do. So I've been beavering away feverishly and uh, up to no good. And, um, and I've had two bank holidays, which has been quite dangerous. So I have, um, I've been very good. You I'm have been very. I have to say, you have been very good. I've not texted you. No, you haven't. In fact, at one point, I thought, and, and Tris said, "Have you have you heard from Al lately?" I went, "No, actually." And he went, "Have you fallen out with him?" <laughs> I was literally biting my hand, um, and so I've been. I have been plotting and scheming. So maybe more of that will come true. But it's maybe about you know in terms of diversifying podcasts that was exciting but you know yeah. we've had that conversation i, yeah, I can't say conversation. anything until we yeah. say that conversation yeah. but yes yes and fair More. to say yes we, you've had two um bank holidays we've had one so um yeah well i don't want to get into politics no we won't let's not but just okay, stay, then, off. Then, yeah, stay off social then, media when there's something going on in the uk if you live in ireland that's what i would say to you <laughs> yes i'm not even going to go there because i can just feel my registration Sliding away, and unless the it's the Eurovision, department. which is on this week, you know, Eurovision is a little bit different because that's excellent, the, excellent, yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm. Anyway, yeah. Anyway, so today, um, I we've got a recording of an interview that I did with uh, Dr. Vicky Baker about her research, listening to children and young people who display violence and aggression to their caregivers and parents. So I have to say, this is a fantastic interview, and um. A really interesting aspect of research, because obviously this is my bread and butter, you know, this is the stuff that yeah. I really, really find interesting and personal experience in that. So I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to, I'm going to keep the powder dry, listen to the interview. Vicky is really articulate. And I don't think people will be particularly surprised by what she's found out, but I think people will still find it interesting. And it's just great to get it sort of academically sort of drawn together. Um, I will put a link, I've put a link into the research and the research is fantastic. Um, mainly because there's a, well, it's all fantastic, but there's one bit at the very beginning which kind of gives a really good overview of the research that's out there. So I'm not going to say much more than that. Uh, Dr. Vicky Baker, fantastic. And she would be, um, she's very happy for people to talk to us as well. So her email will be in the show notes and people can get in touch with that. So that's fantastic. But other than that, Scott, I believe that you've been, you've been using those finely tuned IT skills to create something for us all. Tell us about your little form that you've oh, made. Oh, yes. I wondered where you were going with that because just <laughs> this last couple of weeks has just been absolutely bonkers um, generally. Um, yes, yeah, so um, obviously adopter reference groups so the ARG. We mention it a few times every so often, um, but I think that um, we've kind of, we've decided just to do a little bit more, haven't we? Just yeah. do a little bit more because yeah. we feel it's a little less when when we're when we're asking for people's feedback on stuff for the ARG, which obviously we you know we share stories and we share share people's um, kind of experiences and stuff, um, rather than someone having to do a, a ranty email trying to explain stuff. Actually, we've 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 formulated a form, haven't we, from the podcast, which is anonymous. To, to be honest, yes. it's an online form. Yes. Um, it has the questions that we are um, being asked by the ARG this um, next quarter. So July is the next meeting. Um, and we have been asked to talk about contact. And, and, and when I say contact, don't be writing in and complaining. We're, you know, that is the terminology that we're using in terms of this kind of very, uh, what's the word, um, kind of experience from adopters so it's an adoptive parents group obviously there's many more groups that they, the dfe yeah. have yeah but this is specifically for um adoptive parents to respond to um around contact um and both direct and indirect um and anybody who 
is a regular listener will know that we're very much for language, but actually it's the only way we can describe it at the minute is contact because that's how it's described. And yeah, people, yeah, we'll just... people refer to it as that, don't they? Um, doesn't say we, doesn't mean to say we like the name, but whatever. Um, so oh, yeah, get so on with it. Honestly, it, man, you've danced around that. You should be a politician. I'm not. Shut your hole. Honestly, um, it's like, whoa, 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 word salad. Yeah. Just get on with it, man. Sorry. I'm sorry. That was too, that was too far. I've, I've, I've had a morning of it. All right. <laughs> Oh, well, we might want to reflect on that. You think it was it your wedding anniversary, perhaps, last night? It was, yes. <laughs> Nothing I, I, dirty, just too many wines were consumed by Scotty. Yeah, Pod, um, anyway, Sc yeah. Scott's got so, his metaphorical uh, sunglasses on and is yeah. sipping Alka Seltzer even as we record. Baggy eyes and things, and yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, so we've put the farm together anyway. Um, I think there's. Six questions in total. Um, you don't have to answer them all um, if you've no experience of it, but certainly we would like to hear from you. Um, so we will pop the form link into the show notes. Like I say, it's yeah. anonymous. You don't even have to put your name in. You don't have to put your email address in. Um, for more than one reason, actually, which I was thinking about, because obviously doing the job I do, I was thinking GDPR and all that sort of stuff. So we don't want your email address. We don't want your name because then we'd have to be, <laughs> we'd have to be responsible with GDPR and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. Uh, um, so, yeah, so, so fill it in. It's completely, um, you know, yeah, so that's it, really. What? And we well, will no, no, submit think... those. The thing that's interesting is that obviously you can get, you know, you get national studies and national service, you get yeah. empirical research, you get all of that. But I think oftentimes uh, when we go to the DFE, the reason we go to the DFE is the DFE wants to know what is the word on the street, exactly. what's happening yeah. now, not what yeah. is, you know, because they can commission reports that will take you know, 18 months, two years, yeah. and then it'll come up with a very, a new one, they'll do it really properly and do really well. But what's happening today in terms exactly. of the quantity of, of, contact between children and birth parents mm. so that's yeah. it really it doesn't it it's limited in its scope so it's not talking about birth yeah, siblings no. but yeah. yeah so and it's it's certainly not an, acad an academic kind of research thing either it's literally a couple of questions on contact and do you know what i was just thinking there as well was um you know it doesn't matter at what stage you're at um after having children placed with your family if you've if you've experienced a contact then fill it in you know it doesn't matter yeah. if you've just if you've just had six months as as new parents or if you've had 16 years just crack on and fill it in because everybody's um kind of experiences are, are absolutely yeah. valid and and really we need we need the data don't we so you know to yeah. be able to help with the dfe so there you go yeah and we'll be putting that um information on our socials and everything but it's in the show yeah. notes the link to the absolutely Google form. anything else happening because it's been quite a busy frenetic few weeks got a good you know, i can't even tell you because uh, most of it, most of it, yeah, it's just all there. You don't even know how you got into work today, do you? <laughs> no, I do. I do know that. But um, <laughs> it's just been so busy. And yeah, man, it's been mad, absolutely mad, with lots of great things happening. Yeah, yeah. And Including this stuff with Fiona. Hairbrush, obviously. <laughs> oh, you're sat in the office, aren't you? And you've got your, yes, it's, like a, it's like a call centre for delinquents. I can see it. <laughs> it pretty much is, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I've Perfect. got two delinquents with me today. One's Maggie and one's Rob. And uh, yeah, okay. Excellent. Yeah. It's a yeah. vision Maggie, of it. Maggie's got her Christmas jumper on. So, you know, that's all right. Well, you, you know, you're in for a great day when someone comes in in a Christmas jumper in the middle of May. That's perfect. <laughs> Um, I think the only thing to maybe quickly reflect on, and this was a thing I couldn't remember before we started, um, is in terms of Fiona Wells and the midweek podcast we did last week, the webcast, really yes. good response. Um, yes. We then went off and spoke to loads of different people. So we had meetings with the heads of the National Strategic Adoption mm. Board and DFE, uh, Corum, um, yeah. and not wanting to kind of, keeping our powder dry a little bit, but actually starting to think about really ways of supporting families in crisis because it feels like, that is, we need really practical and tangible stuff. So we're, that is continuing to go uh, across this month, because this comes out on the, whatever, 14th, uh, 12th, 13th, 13th. And um, we're going to be putting out podcasts, with people with different experiences, people who've experienced allegations, adoptive parents and stuff. So, yeah. yeah. So we're going to push, push a few things like that. So it does make it, there's a certain flavor to the month, but um, loads of, loads of people coming forward. So thank you everyone who's coming forward, wanting to be on the podcast. We've got, I, I looked and then yeah. I've got, it's a bit scary. Like emails and, and LinkedIn messages and emails and Facebook messages yeah. and Twitter. Uh, uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so I've got enough like podcasts to last would... <laughs> July. <laughs> and anything beyond that would be out of date. So, <laughs> Well, it's tricky because I've still got pe- podcasts are recording in February that haven't been released yet with people. So I'm, I'm a bit nervous that I'm kind of like saying, I'm really sorry, but, you know. Um, I'm just very grateful that there's not tapes. Like it's all on, you know, it's all on a computer. Because can you imagine how full your office would be if, it'd be, if we... It would be like oh, a, a, my 80s be like, uh, bedroom full of yeah. C90 cassettes. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Anywho, imagine. let's anyway. move along quickly. Uh, Vicky Baker, Dr. Vicky Baker, fantastic interview. We would love to get people's feedback. And again, if you want to contact her, you can directly and read her research because it is just absolutely cracking. So on, on that note, Scott, Bon Jovi. And Jovi. Today, I'm speaking to Dr. Vicky Baker, who is a lecturer, stroke researcher in gender-based violence at the Manchester Metropolitan University. Hello, Vicky. Hello. Nice to be here. Thanks for having me. Wait, thank you for coming on. And I was really interested to see the research that came out of your PhD. So as a start point, can you tell us what your PhD is about? And then we'll find out some backstory and why you did it and that kind of thing. Sure, sure thing. So my PhD is on uh, young people's experiences of using violence and abuse towards parents. Um, and that was so, with the sole purpose of really focusing on young people's own personal accounts of why they use violence and abuse at home, you know, what's going on, what are the contexts. Um, so, yeah, it was all about sort of platforming young people's voices, really, um, in terms of violence and abuse at home. I mean... I think that uh, when I read that 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 was the nature of your PhD and, I've, and the research, and we'll put a link to the research because it's on um, the Holes in the Wall website, and I'm sure it's other places as well, um, so people can read it. Because I think people will be really interested because that's a voice we just we just don't hear so often. So what was it that sort of specifically got you into, well, that made you this area of work, got you into this area of work, but then choosing this specific topic because it's very specific isn't it sure it was, to be honest it was quite quite a rambling road so it wasn't um you know it started off with one thing and then and it and it sort of a few steps along the way ended up <laughs> in the PhD so I suppose originally I worked for a children's research charity called um Dartington Service Design Lab formerly Dartington Social Research Unit and they did a lot of research um around children uh, children in care um and they also did uh, some evaluation work um, and that and that I was involved in that evaluation work. And specifically, that was on the Respect Young People's Programme, which uh, supports families who are experiencing this issue. So I kind of had two um, two ins, as it were. One was that I was responsible for carrying out the evaluation for on the RIP programme. Um, and so I had sort of insights into this area through that. And then the other was that I was carrying out um, analyses of uh, sort of patterns of, of risk and needs and vulnerabilities of children um, within the care system. And within this, I saw a lot of, um, sort of adoption and fostering breakdowns, essentially. And, and, the, and one of the major reasons being young people's use of violence towards parents and, and carers. And so it got me really interested in the subject area. Um, a PhD position came up with the Connect Centre at UCLan. Um, and I was just, as I looked into the area further, I was just kind of quite shocked about the fact that there wasn't that much research out there, but also really that there was a real lack of research from young people's own perspectives. Um, so that's kind of what threw me into deciding to, to focus on this area. So, yeah, there was a few few jumps along the way and I still work with Respect Now on the Respect Young People's Programme. Uh, so that's a, a really enduring sort of uh, relationship, which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that is... Um... It is really interesting that um, that it is such an under, kind of under listened to voice in the, that kind. I mean, as an area subject matter, it's quite under reported or under acknowledged, and um, but then within it, this is the is probably the least heard voice. Yeah. And why do you think that is? I think partly. I I say partly. I think a, a large part is that it is difficult to like research with with young people, it's quite hard to do. There's a lot of gatekeeping that goes on, um, which I think comes from quite a protectionist perspective, as in, you know, people within services, uh, schools, they feel like they're protecting young people from mm. uh, having to, say, to talk about the experiences they've gone through. But actually, when you look at the research, 
speaking about experiences of violence, abuse and trauma actually be really liberating for young people. Um, so we know that's actually that protectionist perspective can actually be quite harmful. And when I uh, definitely when I first started doing the PhD, the aim, um, everyone has these, you know, really grand aims when they first uh, of like a, a super rigorous PhD methodology when they first get going. And then originally I was intending on um, carrying out the survey because uh, I, it was a mixed methods PhD that I did. That was the first phase was um, was a survey um, and the second phase was was in-depth interviews. And originally my, my vision was um, to carry out the survey in a number of schools um, within uh, the London borough where I lived. And I contacted it with something like 120 schools and no school would, would do it. No school would take part in the research at all. I think it is really difficult in that in that situation. You can understand it's not necessarily a priority for schools. And also, if yeah. young people talk about abuse they're experiencing, you know, they need to have provisions in place to make sure that that's responded to effectively. Um, not necessarily being in line with what with what yours might be, um, and then also this kind of protecting or perceived protection of young people, meaning that you don't. It's quite hard to get access. And also young people don't always want to talk about their experiences, yeah. although definitely within my research, they were they were very forthcoming. So I, th I think it, it depends where they're at in terms of what's going on in their life, the journey, as it were. A lot of the young people I spoke to had moved through um, that right. period of time where they'd been... So I mean, I'm presuming that people haven't read the research, so we're going to probably cover a lot sure. of ground about why, you know, what it sure. is, and certainly I'd direct people towards it, because I think it is really interesting. But um, I suppose my reflections on it were it was was that it was interesting that there was a lot of people sort of reflecting back on their behaviour. Um, and was there an element of just of actually getting people to acknowledge it was even, that was the first sort of line to get over and go, well, actually, yeah, this did happen. Oh, this is yeah, happening. I I think there was definitely a, a real variety in terms of how young people framed their behaviours at home. So I would say some of the younger participants very much framed it as behaviour that was quite justified. Right. I wouldn't necessarily say that, or they definitely wouldn't have labelled it as abusive behaviour. Um, and they definitely used a lot of minimising language. So things like. Oh, I you know I pushed her, but I didn't hit her. Something like that. Yeah. Or you know, if you, <laughs> one of the young people said, uh, "Well, if you go up to if you go up to someone on the street and take the drink off them, then you're going to get hit, aren't you?" Whereas when you actually got to some of the older um, young people, um, particularly particularly the older female participants, um, and when I say older, that's kind of seventeen, eighteen. Yeah. Um, they were very much. Had, it, had moved to a position of accepting that the behaviours that they used were harmful and and abusive in some cases. Right. Um, actually, and, and a lot of those young people found it quite helpful having the interviews. They found it quite cathartic um, because we tried to do a little bit of reframing in those sessions about, you know, what what, um, what those experiences might have looked like or felt like from the perspectives of parents, which obviously you have to do extremely sensitively. Yeah. Um, but um, where I did use that, which was only a limited number of interviews, because some of them, it just wouldn't, it wouldn't have been appropriate to have done that. Um, but in the interviews where I did, a young person said it was extremely helpful for her um, in terms of making sense of some of the reasons why um, she used that, that behaviour at home some of the impacts that it had and the perspectives of her mother at the time. So um, it was really, you know, quite, quite a powerful experience for myself as well as a researcher. And also, fortunately, for the young people taking part, yeah. there, there wasn't, there, there weren't, there weren't any young people who came out of those interviews, you know, traumatised from what, from what I could tell and from what their feedback was, which is good evidence for why we should speak to young people about their experience. Yeah, and it's a good it's a good start point as a researcher, isn't it? No one was traumatised in the making of the PhD. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, I, I, that was one of my questions. Well, I mean, to be honest, I have so many questions. And the more you're talking, you, there's just questions like buffering up inside <laughs> my head. Um, so I, I don't think we're going to get too far, to be honest with you. Um, I, I was going to ask about ethical approval because it, it does feel like a sensitive issue. And potentially you're going to have conversations with people who might be... Was there any sort of like any sort of um, 
safety guards around children because they may say, actually, I am still physically harming someone. Yeah, sure. Mm. Um, and we, one of the challenges I always find with this is that this conversation is always framed around child safeguarding, and rarely around adult safeguarding. So what was that all? How did that all play into it? It's not a rubbish question. It's more of a point. Sure. Sorry. Yeah. So, you know, safety is always really important, isn't it? And safeguarding of adults and children uh, within this situation. I was fortunate in that. So the research was carried out um, in across two samples, essentially. One was a sixth form college um, and one was a youth offending service. So the young people within the youth offending service were very much um, in a supported position, as were the parents um, right. of those young people. So they had a key worker. It was a key worker who'd identified these young people as being um, potential participants. And then the young people and the parents had then consented uh, for the research to go ahead. So they were very much in a supported position. Uh, and when, if and when things came up, which were potential issues around safeguarding, of which there were both adult and child issues around safeguarding, I would kind of pause the interview, speak to the young person and say, you know, you know, I'm going to have to potentially speak to someone about what you've told me, you know, mm. is that okay with you? But to be honest, the young people within the youth offending context were very much used to, sadly, working within that kind yeah. of safeguarding context. So they're very much used to that, um, that kind of procedure, as it were, which obviously is extremely sad because they're kind of, you know, it shows the exposure that they have to these services and the fact that they're, they really did go from one service to the next service to the next service um, across a range of different issues. Um, but it did on the, on the upside mean that they were, they were very well supported. And then after the interviews, I'd speak to their key worker, make sure that they were really aware of some of the issues that were going on. Uh, within the youth offending service, there was a, a lot around substance misuse, um, criminality, as you sort of, as you'd assume, um, but yeah. also around violence and abuse at home. And then in the uh, in the in the college context, I was just in touch with the safeguarding lead there, um, and also whenever a safeguarding issue came up, I'd, I'd essentially explore the issue further to get a better a better sense about was that a present issue, was that a past issue, had there been services involved, mm -hmm. uh, and 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 did I feel like um, there needed to be further safeguarding input? So it is something that you do always, you know, that does need to be fully thought out in advance um and i think probably one of the reasons why yeah some of the schools didn't want to take part because it is you know you, you can't just say oh i heard this thing and i'm not going to do anything yeah. about it so um but yeah it is it makes it tricky it makes it, it makes it tricky for sure look i'm gonna have to confess that i'm really struggling in this interview because i've just read i'm re i've got the list of all of your um your chapters and your character your the chapter titles and each one of them i go oh, i've got three questions about that i've got three <laughs> questions about that um, you know, theoretical conceptual framework. Yes, the impact of parenting abuse, um, prevalence of an incident, uh, defining. It's huge, isn't them, it? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I've got my own notes, and I wrote it. I'll be honest. <laughs> <laughs> you got your own questions. Um, uh, it, like, just there's so much to to kind of dig into, and I guess I don't. What I don't want to do is it to, for me it to turn into my personal conversation because <laughs> actually, um, what were the maybe cutting to the end then really that mm -hmm. having sort of set this framework where you're talking to young people um, what were the, what are the key takeaways for you as a researcher sort of, and a practitioner? Cause you, you're working in the field as well, aren't you? Yeah. So I do work within a research context though. So I work carefully, I work closely with practitioners, but I don't actually practice myself. But um, so the key takeaways, I think, you know, I said that it was mixed methods that, the majority, sort of the bulk of the findings, I would say, came out of those in-depth interviews, those sort of qualitative findings. But there is there was a lot of interesting um, insights from the survey as well, because originally I, I wanted to understand what the prevalence of the issue was, um, and I decided to do that within the education context. And uh, what kind of came out of it, I suppose, is the importance of um, how we're defining the issue, how we're kind of operationalizing and defining it within the, within a survey, is actually very difficult because because the definition of it in of itself is quite tricky. Um, mm. And I've spoken to you know a number of people on this podcast, Helen, about this issue. Um, 
actually trying to pin down which cases represented child-to-parent abuse cases and which didn't. Yeah. Uh, that, that ended up being an exercise in of itself in the PhD, which I found really useful. And I kind of, out of that came around a, a 10% figure for me um, when you're trying to look at both. I know, but when you're trying to look at, if you're taking into consideration violent, physical violence and non-physical forms of violence that are patterned so that it's happened more than once, um, that, that was the figure that I came up with, which, you know, is... It is a lot, you know, when you're kind of scaling that outwards. Mm. However, the, the kind of the interesting thing and sort of the reason I brought it up really is that in the literature, this varies so much when you're talking about prevalence because, you know, I use the conf- an adapted version of the conflict tactic scale, which a lot of other researchers have used. Um, but quite often they're talking about psychological abuse. Some of those, some of those um, sort of items, some of those questions on the surveys they can be, they annoyed my, I annoyed my parent or I swore at my parent. And then you all of a sudden you find these 96% psychological abuse rates. And I think we have to be very careful when we're kind yeah. of, we're talking about prevalence. What are, we, what are we actually talking about? What do these figures actually represent? And the problem is no one person is talking about the same thing. And so I found that just that exercise was a finding in of itself. You know, it was 10% for my study however it was more about how how do we how do we operationalize child to parent abuse within a survey in order to be able to count and understand how common common it is as an issue um it was quite a rambling answer but that was kind of no, no. the first half it, of the phd <laughs> well i think that that reflects the nature of the beast doesn't it that it is yeah. such a complicated issue and i was going to ask you well i was going to do my best not to ask you about the whole abuse language because I think sure it's really difficult uh, and it is isn't it it's just such a having read your research I totally understand you know the the, that you coming from you know working your work with respect that it is much more it's a different it's it's an older group of children Mm -hmm. different it's a different manifestation of it but it is still such a well, the subject, it's maybe not subjective to you because you're a PhD, you know, you're a doctor, so you're much cleverer than me, but it feels subjective to me that how you define it. And because I've worked with families who said mm-hmm. they would never categorize it as abuse. Yeah, sure. And I think, you know, and I think it, it is it subjective is. and I think it's, <laughs> it's context dependent, it's family dependent. And, you know, the other, you know, the other side of the research, so the, the main thrust of it, um, were young people's own conceptualizations of what their violence and abuse at home, if they even termed it that, which some of them did, some right. of them didn't. Um, you know, what that meant, where it came from, whether it served any functions. And so that was really, you know, that it was so rich, the information that young mm-hmm. people were able to provide. Um, and in some cases, extremely eloquently, you know, and in great depth. And clearly, particularly for those who'd been through therapeutic support, They'd gone through a process of self-reflection that then meant they were really able to articulate quite clearly, you know, some of these contexts. So some of the main ones, if I just kind of got them written in front of me as notes, because it is hard, as you say, it's it's a bit of a beast, the PhD. But there was kind of six key areas, sort of key themes that young people spoke about. The biggest of which was kind of young people's victimization experiences themselves. So young people quite often um this is not to say that this is always the case because it's not always the case but within this sample the majority of young people are experienced some form of victimization and that was either domestic abuse between parents it was um direct abuse of themselves either by a parent caregiver or someone outside of the family and also um some quite severe peer violence as well um so th- there was a lot of experiences of victimization that was the majority of the sample had that and and you know although there's not one cause i would say that for a lot of young people that did underpin um the rest of those behaviors so for example difficulties with communication with parents especially where young people had experienced domestic abuse between parents obviously they were traumatized their mothers this was mm-hmm. typically mothers were traumatized and this meant that they had 
difficulties communicating with one another because they they hadn't um, had the opportunity to work through that therapeutically either on their own separately yeah. or then together. Um, and this this meant that those sort of everyday negotiations of power and control in the parent-child, parent-adolescent relationship particularly, you know, things around rights, freedoms, you know, allowance for space, requests to do chores, all of a sudden that became highly heated and with mm. limited ability to communicate difficulties around emotion regulation. So these are all these kind of themes. Uh, it wasn't sort of one theme per person. Quite often they all were there interacting with one another. So, and a lot of the young people had uh, experiences of other stress factors. So stress around school, around friends, around relationships. They didn't have these kind of coping resources to draw yeah. upon. Um, and this was all of it sort of feeding in and, and also context of blame towards mothers for some of the abuse they'd experienced, for the absence of fathers in the home. And this all kind of fed into uh, it's sort of sort of like the it's sort of a perfect explosion, really, of facts yeah. that resulted in this um, abuse dynamic going on. And, and in a number of cases, young people were experiencing abuse they were actually retaliating and using violence in self-defense. So then it throws out that whole use of the term abuse, doesn't it? Can we even talk about child to parent abuse in a context of child abuse? Um, so, you know, yeah. let's I mean, discuss that. It's, I mean, it is fascinating. Um, I mean, that on that final point, I often, I'm a non-violent resistance practitioner and often the, the conversation around how children perceive children who've experienced adversity and, even very young children who've been very, there's very little children that experienced it, but then lived out away from that. Mm. Children who are reactive to parents and adults' manner in a way that's, that's not proportionate or not, it's, they're sure. reactive. Mm-hmm. And so it just creates this really complicated soup where parents, sometimes reasonable requests are met with unreasonable responses. Yeah. Yeah, sure. There was a really, really useful term that I that I came across actually in, in the research, which was I can't remember who who used it now, but overactive threat appraisals, which is this kind of sense of your they're you know rather than starting at a one, they're already at an eight or nine. Yeah. And so anything that that is even potentially just a request is seen as some kind of threat and responded to in that in that way that that a threat would be. Uh, with violence is and that's not to justify it at all it's more just to understand the context and to understand where young people are at when when they're using these behaviors um so that yeah practitioners can go in with that understanding it's sort of meeting young people yeah. where they are rather than where you think they should be um yeah which i think it, uh, my experience of working with parents and carers is that that sometimes there's a lot of learning to do that and not to parent blame you know because often no. parents feel blamed but it's to say, look, let's, if we understand, then we can amend, uh, adjust how we interact. Sure. And it's hard, isn't it, to, it's hard to not, it's, it's hard to say, to hold that space of, we're not blaming young people, but also we're not blaming parents as well. You know, the research that I did really showed quite heavily that mothers really were, they had a really awful end of the deal. You know, they were trying to deal with their own trauma they were trying to parent a child with trauma. Um, and that's not to say it's always about trauma, but for a lot of these young people, it was. Um, and I think that for sure, when when both parents and young people can have that support that they need separately, and then they can come together therapeutically, I think that's that's probably where the best progress is going to be made. Um, yeah. But, it, but it's hard, isn't it? It's hard to hold hold the space for both yeah. both sides. Um, I, I, yeah, as well, I, I met with a, a woman who had two children recently and she sort of got herself out of domestic abuse situation from her male partner. And now that behaviour was then being manifest in this little nine-year-old. And she knew that she wasn't, it was a, it was a raw wound for her and mm-hmm. to see this person she loved, this little person. Yeah manifesting this behavior she'd seen in this person she it's like you think there is no solution that's simple mm-hmm. <laughs> that's just that and that's it yeah everyone needs something in this and it, you can't just go to a parent and go well put in some firmer boundaries 
Sure. And it's hard, isn't it? Because the problem is as well, is that you're asking parents to make changes, which is necessary, but also potentially they're exhausted. Um, they already feel blamed. They feel like it, you know, the ball shouldn't be in their courts. Um, I suppose it's just making sure everyone feels heard, really, um, yeah. in the situation. But it is, yeah, it's it's an extremely complex um, problem to navigate, I think. Yeah. I, my hat goes off to all the practitioners out there that are doing a fantastic job at trying yeah. to address it. I just, if people say that to me, I just faint. That's what I do. It's my strategy <laughs> um, for getting out of it. Just, you know, like... Um, uh, you, you said you got six points, and I may have distracted you somewhere through those points. Uh, did you say you got six specific findings? Um, or yeah, you... so like the main themes were, as I say, the underlying experiences of victimization, that navigating power, control, and agency in the parent-child relationship. That was mm. that was often, if if you think about the victimization experiences as re- laying the kind of foundations of. Um, this later on use of violence and abuse at home, you could maybe see the kind of negotiations of power as being that immediate site of where child-to-parent abuse takes place because it's got those triggers, essentially, you know, requests to do chores, removal of phones. Um, And actually, one of the interesting findings was quite often these were things, um, removal of something or refusal of something that was sort of addictive or had some sort of dependency around it. So, young people using their phones to um, to quite intense levels and control of that by a parent resulting in quite an explosive reaction from young people. Yeah. Same with television, cigarettes, sweets. So things that are kind of, you may have physical or emotional dependencies around. Uh, so those are the sort of immediate site of, of, you know, those kind of explosive or abusive interactions. And then the stress and coping contexts quality of communication so young people spoke a lot about how um they found regulating their emotions difficult which was another kind of theme anger and emotion regulation and that when they were communicating with parents or you know negotiating um, at home that they found it very difficult if parents increased the volume of those conversations they found right. it very difficult to regulate themselves um when the when the when the sound was turned up as it was and also when their space was constrained within that so forcing them to have a discussion at that moment in time where they were feeling at an eight or nine you know and a lot of the sort of child to parent abuse programs do do deal with this quite well you know coming back to arguments cold rather than hot yeah. um setting aside safe spaces for young people to calm down uh, and these are all from for my findings the, you know the, the right things to be doing from young people's mm. perspective um, and yeah, and the last theme was around blame, which was really kind of, um, I kind of took a, an in-depth look at young people's language when they were discussing their violence and abuse at home. And s- some, but not all, used kind of minimising um, language justification. Um, you know, if you do that, you'd expect to get hit, wouldn't you? That kind of thing. Yeah. And also something called um, claims to reduce competence, where you're like, I just blacked out, so... You know, whatever happened in that time, that's not on me. You know, oh, I lost it. Um, I couldn't control myself. And these are things that you hear within the broader domestic abuse sort of literature as well. And that's not to say that they directly map onto one another because we obviously we know the power dynamics are extremely dif- different. Um, yeah. But there are similarities that can be drawn. Um, and that kind of... Uh, that kind of narrative, some of the narratives were, were quite similar. Um, however, with some of the, the older um, young people, there was a lot more responsibility being taken for those uh, abusive behaviours, which you don't necessarily see so much in the domestic mm. abuse literature. Um, and then I would say some of the other key findings are, uh, and this contributes towards the whole discussion around intentionality, which is obviously really oh. tricky. Oh. <laughs> exactly. It's very difficult to navigate. Um, although I think... I'd like to say maybe we're at a place where we can understand that that fluctuates and that can uh, maybe there might be some intention at points and then not at other mm. points. And that is something maybe that changes over time and is quite dynamic and maybe quite fluid, also very context dependent. You know, potentially uh, child to parent violence in the context of neurodivergence um, versus not necessarily versus, but or if you're looking at child to parent violence and abuse in the context of 
domestic abuse between parents, sort of um, direct child abuse, that maybe some of these things might be slightly different um, and some of this intentionality might be slightly different. You're However, dancing around this one, aren't you? <laughs> I know, it's, it's really tricky, it's well, really tricky. But anyway, young people kind of framed that their violence and abuse had sort of functions, essentially. That right. there were certain functions um, of the violence abuse. Again, that's not to say it's justified functions, but more that they served a purpose at the time. And these were letting off steam. Um, particularly, this was around things like the destruction of property at home, you know, punching yeah. holes in walls, breaking televisions. That helped them to, to feel better. Um, obviously, didn't help parents to feel better, unfortunately. Um, that helped them to, essentially, that was like an unhealthy, unhealthy coping mechanism. Um, self-defense and retaliation. So yeah. that function was, yeah, to defend themselves. Another function was unfortunately punishing mothers. So violence and abuse at home was a way of punishing mothers for what they had perceived as harms that they had experienced that were their fault. That's how they perceived it at the time. Fortunately, you know, the young people would move past that and saw it in a new light by the time that I'd spoken to them. Um, but that was essentially the function it served at the time. Also communicating distress. A number of young people talked about that they were crying out for help and that was the only way that they could do that was both by being violent at home to draw attention to some of the distress they were experiencing. Um, and then also to gain back power and control. So when we look at those immediate contexts, they wanted their phones, they wanted to go out with friends and yeah. they felt that in a life where potentially they hadn't had control at other points and potentially those some of those who had been victimised especially that this was a way of them gaining power and control where they didn't feel like they had much um, or where they just wanted it. You know, some of the young people were like, I just want what, what every teenager wants to be able to go out whenever yeah. I want to have what I want. So I think, it, you know, that was really useful for me in, because I think when we say intention and intentionality, it's framed very much as like, are they being a bad child with you know, malicious yeah. intentions of harming somebody. I don't think it's always, it doesn't always have to be intention in that sense. I think something can serve a function. It doesn't mean that you're in, in, intending on harming someone or it could be that you're blocking yeah. out that that is a consequence, um, you know, conveniently. But and, um, and, that, and I think you, I think intention is a really fascinating um it's a fascinating word because what I sometimes do if I'm doing training is I'll put up that I think it's the cultural definition, which I can't mm. remember word for word, but in the middle of it, all it says that intends to gain power and control. Yeah, sure. Um, and if I show that to a group of parents, really often I'll say, what do you think about this? And people will sort of focus in on the word intent and a lot of people will sort of describe that they don't believe that their child wakes up in the morning and goes, do you know what I'm going to do today? Sure. But in that moment of dysregulation, conflict, yeah. how, then there is a real sense of intention. Yeah, it's a way of getting what I want at that time. You yeah. know? I yeah. feel uncomfortable with this, you know, boundary being put in place. Yeah. And this is, this is potentially the only way forward that I see in trying to, you know, change the balance of power, essentially. It's uh, maybe learned behavior. It's what I've seen yeah. my dad do and it worked for him. He got mm -hmm. 10 pounds or he got, um, and I find it fascinating because I think as professionals, like as a practitioner coming into that, that, that we've got to understand that nuance because if we're then trying to have a conversation with a child after the fact about, mm -hmm. well, why did you want, why did you do that? Yeah. That's a delicate conversation, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. I do think it, you know, this is one of the difficulties of the research as well. When you're, when you're talking after the fact, it's, Young people's understandings of why they do what they do, as not even just young people, adults' understandings yeah. of why they do what they do, can change over time and also change with memory. Um, yeah. You know, we all like to think of ourselves in certain ways. And I think sometimes when you're reflecting on why you might have done something, it might end up, you know, you might end up framing it in a way that's favorable to you or the opposite of that. You could be blaming yourself quite a lot heavily for what went on. So, uh, and you could catch someone on one day or the next and, and their framing could be different. So I suppose we always have to appreciate that any research conversations that you do, they are conversations that you're having with someone on a day and they're constructed on that day through what you're saying, asking them for, through what they think you might want to hear as well. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. 
Yeah. I mean, it's an amazing piece of research and I would really recommend people read it because I think that, yeah, you've, you've kind of given us the highlights as in, you know, what reflects, but actually I think in, if you, if people are interested in this topic, you've, you've done a literature review, you've really unpicked sure. this. I mean, it's an amazing piece of research and okay. a doctorate. Um, where can people find it if they want to find it and somewhere where you can count how many people have read it? Is there somewhere like sure. that? So, yeah, it's um, very uh, kindly being hosted by Helen Bonnet on a website, Holes in the Wall. Right. So people can access it via that. I will be publishing articles based on it eventually. I'm sure my PhD supervisors are jumping up and down, um, <laughs> hoping that that's going to happen anytime soon. Um, so yeah, as soon as they're, they're out, they'll probably, they'll also probably be on Helen Bollock's website, I imagine, saying she covers, cool. uh, she covers good that's ground. Fine. Yeah, that's it. So, um, yeah. And, and if, if anyone's got any questions, they can, they can message me as well. Um, at my Manchester Metropolitan email address. So I, I would say as well to encourage people to read it because this is me talking about what young people are saying um, and really, uh, you know, the research is supposed to platform actually what young people themselves say. So it's nice for people to read the actual PhD, even if you yeah. just <laughs> skip to, you know, the chapters which have got young people's voices <laughs> in it because you can actually hear what they have to say. Mm. about their experiences um which was you know fascinating also sad um but um but yeah really quite extraordinary in lots of cases so so what next what are you going to do with i mean you're going to write some articles but it, it, you've got a where else you'd like to go what what would be your aspiration this would be used for and then what would sure. you like to then do after it yeah well i, I suppose it I want it to be disseminated as widely as possible. So it would, it would be good if it was embedded within sort of um, practitioner education um, and any kind of any kind of inputs where you're talking about this issue, <clears throat> where predominantly the accounts come from, you know, parents and practitioners. That we, really we've got some of this, um, some of the young people's voice in there as well to make this a bit more of a balanced account would be would be fantastic. Um, and as much as possible, you know, I'm trying to do. Um, sessions and lectures when uh, when we're when we're thinking about you know I work in the department of nursing um, at Manchester Metropolitan University and we're you know embedding much more gender-based violence research within the curriculum there so whenever there's any kind of curriculum I think uh, child uh, child to parent violence and abuse can be embedded within I'm trying to do that and then putting in this voice of the young person within that so I suppose it's dissemination as as wide as possible mm. Also thinking, you know, that obviously the research has limitations. So it'd always be good to do, um, to take this research a little bit further, make it a little bit more diverse. That would be good. It's obviously a limited sample um, yeah. in its size. And that means you're limited in terms of the diversity. And you know, thinking from an intersectional perspective, it'd be great to have, you know, more young people who are care experienced, for example. That was, you know, a, a perspective that, was captured within the PhD, but not necessarily ex explored as much yeah. as it could have been. Also, young people who are neurodivergent. Again, it was captured to a certain extent in the PhD, but you know there wasn't the space to really or the sample dedicated to that particular issue. Mm. Um, you know, and looking at you know differences across age. You know, some of my colleagues are doing really well at this, looking at that uh, violence and abuse towards parents in those earlier years. Yeah. How might that different? be different to where you know adults are being adult children are being violent and abusive to parents so really looking on along that life course perspective um my other my other area of work is domestic homicide and parasite connects you know domestic homicide i know it sadly to, to child to parent abuse literature yeah. in a contested way not everyone agrees that that is along a spectrum but sadly i think it can be there um, in in yeah. the more extreme cases, mm. so um, so yes, looking looking along that life course perspective would be something I'd be interested in doing, and continuing to try and tap into young people's perspectives, um, for sure. Well, I I just want to thank you so much because I think um, it's a really important piece of research. I mean, and I don't I'm just not just saying that because you're on the podcast. I do think that it brings something to the party that we've not had. And it's in some ways it does feel like a 
it's an open playing field, this area of research, isn't it? Because there's just sure. such, so little on it. But it's, this is a, a really key text and hopefully it will kind of, it will really make people think differently and kind of people will build on it, hopefully. So is there any questions I haven't asked you that you'd like, you were hoping I was going to ask? <laughs> final question. No, I think it was good. I think it was good that we had a nice methodology chat at the start because I think it is key into why this issue is not quite so covered in the depth that it is covered um from young people's perspective so that was good and uh and yeah no that's uh, as i say i'm happy to answer any questions that anyone's got that they want to direct my way if they're uh, what, if they're interested what's your email address it's v.baker at mmu.ac.uk excellent um i shall put that in the show notes as well and people and hopefully you won't get bombarded um <laughs> um and it'll only be nice people asking nice questions and yeah. um, vicky it's been an absolute pleasure dr vicky baker to speak to you thank you very um, much really appreciate you coming on and i have a feeling we'll be hearing more from you in the future hopefully for sure <laughs> <laughs> good bye-bye bye-bye stop recording <laughs>